Praise God. Good afternoon, family. Again, it's great to be with you. So glad you're here. There are a few more of us here than there were when we first got started. So welcome to all of you. Made it through the rain, and uh, here we are. We are continuing in the gospel according to Mark. This will be part two of three parts in the same text of Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. And so I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn there to Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 16 through 47. We're going to read all of that together today. Uh, All three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, we're going to read that whole passage together to kind of just sit in that moment of the crucifixion and the death and the burial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And So I'm going to invite you to stand now for the reading of that word. Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. I'll invite you to read out loud along with me. Uh, If you're able to stand for the whole thing, praise God. If you're not, that's okay. Praise God for that as well. Please don't feel condemned if you can't stand uh, for that whole time. Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. Let's begin. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As I reminded us last week in Mark's Gospel, it has all come to this. The truths that we confess each week in the Creed, we believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. The central tenets of our faith hang on these three words, crucified, dead, and buried. For although Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial were not the end of His story, they were the vicarious means God supplied for our atonement. Vicarious. It's a purposeful word. Why? We talk about sometimes vicariously living out our own dreams through our children. Uh, I had not really seen that so much myself until this last year, the first time that my son decided to play baseball. And each game as I sat in the stands and he would take the bat and walk up to the plate or grab his mitt and walk out in the field. I felt the same sort of palpitation of my heart, the sweatiness of my palms that I used to feel when I went out there. And though I don't believe in any of this, I could not help but almost try to will him not to make all the same mistakes that I did so that he might somehow uh, live in greater baseball glory than his dad did. That was me trying to vicariously live out my own dreams through my son. Now, in its worst uh, iterations, that can be a very dangerous place to remain. However, there is something uh, to be said for how we as parents long to see our children not only do some of the things that we have done, but go past us in life. And so we understand that word vicarious. It means to live out through someone else. 
And yet God is the one who designed this idea that someone else might live out something for us. And it was Jesus. Through His crucifixion, His death, and His burial, they were the vicarious means God supplied for our atonement. Make no mistake, without the cross, without the death, and the burial of Jesus, we are lost. But because of them, we have been granted new life through faith in Him, which is why we confess it so often. Last week, our first week in this text, Matthew, uh, Mark 15, 16 through 47, we spent time talking about the shame, the curse, and the centrality of the cross, focusing our attention specifically on the crucifixion of our Lord for us and in our place. This week, we'll consider his death. And today I want to talk to you about how the death of Christ was necessary, that the death of Christ was substitutionary, and that the death of Christ was effectual. The death of Christ was necessary, it was substitutionary, and it was effectual. That means that it actually accomplished what it was purposed to accomplish. And so I want to direct our attention back to the text in verses 33 through 41, where we see more succinctly just the death of our Lord. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There are several things here in these few verses that are God's own testimony to the veracity of the words of the centurion at the end of this smaller passage. What did the centurion say? He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Remember that Mark is writing his gospel to a Roman church, a persecuted Roman church. And how did he open his gospel? The very first words that Mark pins in his gospel account, which by all reasonable uh, account, is the first gospel that was ever written. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wasn't holding any cards to his chest when he opened the page on that one. He put it right out there from the very beginning. And then all throughout Mark's gospel, what have we seen? We've seen person after person doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The people that we least expected to tell the truth about Jesus were the ones that Jesus had to tell to shut up. The demons. When Jesus would come in, and remember what would happen? The demons would say, here He is, the blessed Son of David, the Son of God. And Jesus would tell them to be quiet. Why? wasn't that it wasn't the truth. It was the truth. But the messenger was not trustworthy. And yet, Mark draws our attention to show the juxtaposition between those that ought to have known the truth and did not. The scribes, the Pharisees, the council, all of the Sanhedrin together. Even those who grew up or with and around Jesus in his hometown, his own mother and his brothers. 
None of them before what took place on this day were able until Peter to say what? Truly, you are the Christ, the Son of God. What a blessing, I wonder, it was for a persecuted Roman church to see a Roman centurion, one through whom's one through whose hands the persecution of the emperor was brought to their backs to hear him of all people say, truly, this man was the Son of God. But it was God Himself which was giving His own testimony to this man's words as what happens, darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day. By all reasonable account, this was some kind of eclipse. We're getting ready for an eclipse of our own here pretty soon. Uh, the area that I live in is right smack dab, almost right in the point of best observance of this eclipse. And so all the people around us are getting ready. They know it's coming. Imagine if you didn't know that an eclipse was coming. Imagine if you didn't know what an eclipse was. You'd never been taught it in school. You didn't understand the word. No one told you that these things happen. To be in the middle of the day and to have the sun blotted out suddenly and darkness fill the land in the middle of the day. What might that do to you mentally and emotionally if you have no frame of reference for what this thing was or why it was taking place? Imagine if you had no understanding that it was going to take place, but you were there in Jerusalem on the day when the one that they called the King of the Jews, that some had called the Christ, the Messiah, was crucified and killed on a Roman cross. How could you but not receive the blotting out of the Son as a testimony to God? Yet they were blind. They continued to mock. Even when Jesus cries out obviously to God, they mock Him for crying for Elijah. Even still, God testifies further when Jesus breathes His last, verse 37 and then in verse 38, the curtain the curtain that was in the temple, the curtain that God instructed to be made in very specific form with an extreme degree of thickness, an extreme degree of size that it took many different animals and people to put this curtain up in its place in the temple to separate the most holy place, the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. 
This one section of the temple where the sacrifice would be made and only one man on one day out of the year could go into this place. And even when he went into this place, he had to have bells around the bottom of his robe and a rope tied to his foot so that if he went in and for some reason he had not done all of the things that he was supposed to do to uh, appease the wrath of God and, and have the temporal atonement of a sacrificial lamb upon him, God would strike him dead and they could not even go in there to go and retrieve his body. They would have to pull him out by that rope. And the only way that they would know is if they stopped hearing the tinkling of the bells on the bottom of his robe. There were certain things that he was supposed to do while he was in there that meant that his ministry and service before the Lord would keep him moving, which meant the whole time those bells were tinkling, they knew that God had not struck the man dead. And yet on this day, when Christ, the sacrificial and atoning lamb, not a lamb that was to be slain once every year, but a lamb that was to be slain once for all time, when that sacrifice had been made from top to bottom, as if torn by hands, the curtain that separated the people of God from the presence of God was torn in two. Yet again, a testimony of God Himself to the veracity of the words of this centurion soldier, the words of Mark in his Gospel himself, that truly this man was the Son of God. You see, the death of Christ was necessary. The curtain could never be torn. The availability for us to hear the words of the New Testament that we ought to, with, with moral implication, we ought to draw near to the throne of grace that we might find help in time of need. That could not exist if the place to God's presence was not opened up through one man. And that could not be done apart from His death. The death of Christ was necessary. Why was it necessary? Well, again, I take you back to the beginning. To Genesis 2, verses 15-17. through 17, God has created the whole world. He has created man. He's placed man in the world. And then it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. So there's an even further ushering of him into a very special place. What was special about this place, the Garden of Eden itself, was as a temple. The place where God's presence dwelt. We would learn later that man would walk with God in the cool of the morning here in this place. That like Moses, he would talk to God as one man talks to a friend. It says the Lord God, Genesis 2.15, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He was the priest of this temple. He was to care. He was a caretaker. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden just as the priests and his family 
and those who lived with him and worked with him would be sustained from the sacrifices and offerings in the temple in the very beginning. The man who attended to the garden, to that temple of God, was sustained by the fruit of that temple. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall what? Surely die. This is why Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That when you sin, you are earning for yourself one thing, and that thing is death. Now the expectation then on the day of the fall, which takes place in Genesis 3, is immediate judgment of Adam and Eve through death. But did that happen? Did not happen. Adam carried on living. So did Eve. Not only carried on living, if we are to receive the word of God as it is written, and he carried on living for over 900 years, but ultimately physically did die. What happened? Certainly there were consequences for Adam's sin, but by all accounts, God commutes Adam's sentence. Instead of an immediate and complete death on the day of infraction, Adam dies spiritually, yet lives on physically, but with hard labor and toil in his God-given work and mandates. God did not lie or change his mind, but rather allowed the full penalty for Adam's sin to be commuted to Christ. Why? Because Adam's death after infraction had no power whatsoever to accomplish the redemption necessary to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's holy nature and thereby reconcile Adam to God without Adam himself being swallowed up and obliterated by the hot burning fire of God's holiness, which we as men commonly refer to as God's wrath. See, the only power that Adam's death had was to pass on the guilt that he had incurred to us. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes and he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that one man? It was Adam. And death through sin, so death came through Adam's sin into the world. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That in Adam we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, who gave the law, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, listen to this, who was a type of the one who was to come. Theologians will call Adam our first federal head. That he is the head 
or was the head of the human family. And by his infraction of, uh, against the one who was Lord over all, all of his progeny are underneath the curse of his sin and infraction, his transgression. And so because of that, we inherited his sin and his penalty. Understand that if God had said, right, Adam, you sin, the payment, the wage of that sin is death, you must now die to pay for your sin, you and Eve both, what would have happened? Could they have shed their own blood for their own sin? Would God have received that sacrificial blood payment as redemptive for their lives? No, they would have died and our Bible would have ended in Genesis chapter 3. But God had a different plan. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 through 20 uh, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, there was nothing that Adam was going to be able to do after he had already broken the law and was now under its curse to get out of it himself. All men after Adam are under the law and therefore under its curse and all have been made sinners there. Under that curse, there is no release without someone to receive the wages of that sin in such a way that their blood payment could be received as redemptive. And how could that happen? Only if the blood of that person was perfect. Without spot, without blemish. Which meant what? That Jesus couldn't just show up on a Friday and die and resurrect on a Sunday and go back to heaven. There was more that needed to be done. Jesus came in the form of a man. Philippians told us, we've read it much over the last several weeks, that He emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant even to die on a cross. But it was His perfect life that was lived until that day. His obedience to God from birth until that day that made Him the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. For truly the wages of sin is death. But, what's the rest of Romans 6.23? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, there was something deeper going on. If you're a a fan of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll remember that Edmund was the great traitor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the witch demands his blood for deep magic. But Aslan comes and substitutes himself for Edmund through a loophole where something had been written before that Lewis calls a deeper magic still. 
You see, there was something deeper going on, something that was at play before Adam was even created. And because of this, it was necessary that through the portal of death, Christ might go through that death to prepare a way of life for us who apart from His power at work in us had no hope of reconciliation with God according to our own works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. God's will in making man, in creating man in the first place, was to have an eternal benevolent relationship with His creation. All that we have, all that we are, all that we will ever be, has been gifted to us as an act of God's grace and benevolence towards us. But where does that benevolence emanate from? Where does it begin? Where does it have its genesis? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Listen, verse into verse 5, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You see, before Adam even had a chance to break God's law, God Himself had already purposed that Adam would be holy and blameless before Him. Even before Adam had been given the chance to fall in the garden, God had purposed in love to predestine him not just to be His Son through creation, but to be His Son through adoption in Christ Jesus or through Christ Jesus. You see, beloved, it was always the plan for us to be blessed in and through not the work of Adam, but the work of Christ for us and in our place. What did the Scripture say? He has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. And why? That we should be holy and blameless. What is God's will for us? That we should be holy and blameless. What does God want for us? That we should be holy and blameless. What did Jesus say was God's will for us? Our sanctification. What is that? To be holy and blameless. He has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in, He says, the Beloved. And this was all according to the purpose of His will. Can I ask you a question? Is there anything that God wants that God does not get? 
Is there anything powerful enough in all the universe that could possibly keep the creator of all things from attaining that which he desires? There is nothing. And so before Adam even had a chance to fall, there was a deeper purpose in God that was already at play. That there was going to be the opportunity for Adam to be God's son, not just through creation, but through adoption. That he would be his son as all of grace, not by any of his own works. That he could not, in his own place, in that garden, ever have worked enough, ever have been perfect enough, ever have done all the right things and never eaten the fruit enough. It never would have been long enough that he could have earned the right to be called the beloved Son of God as Christ is. And yet, the Apostle John will say that even as he is, so we shall be. Apart from Christ's work for him, and in his place, Adam would only ever bear the image of the man of dust. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that because of the work of Christ for us and in our place, not only Adam, but all of his progeny that will put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus, there will come a day when we no longer bear the image of the man of dust, of our father Adam, but will bear the image of the man of heaven, our new federal head, Jesus, who earned redemption for us. You see, before the foundation of the world, before the fall, God had a plan. A plan whereby His holiness would not be compromised and whereby His grace would be glorified. The plan includes everything in history, including the fall. And the plan is Jesus. The plan is the cross, the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Christ Jesus, the Son, on behalf of sinners. Where He suffered the complete pain not only of an agonizing death, not only of the stripes on his back from the cat of nine tails, not only from the thorns in his skull, not only from the beating of reeds and fists, but the mental and emotional anguish of having our sins placed on him and the wrath of God poured out on him for our sins. This is why in Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only was this something that Jesus was living out experientially, it was the prophetic word of David in Psalm 22, 
which begins in verse 1 by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It carries on. It says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And yet the psalmist in Psalm 22 verse 3 in the midst of that painful anguish of experientially feeling as if God Himself had forsaken Him, hangs on to faith and in verse 3 says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Even in this moment of complete anguish, Jesus does not blaspheme. I cannot stub my toe without having to bite my tongue to not say something that I don't want my kids to hear me say. And I'm not always successful. And yet Jesus, in the midst of not only physical pain, but extreme emotional and mental anguish, something that we cannot even possibly comprehend, what it would mean to have had up until that point complete, perfect, eternal unity with the rest of the Godhead, Father and Spirit. And in that moment to feel as if that was no longer the case. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Yet, even in this moment, Jesus does not blaspheme, but rather entrusts Himself to the very God who He feels is abandoning Him. My God, my God, this is not blasphemy. It is trust. My God. My God. He quotes Psalm 22. Does He know it? Or do the words merely match the moment? Is it both? We may never know this side of glory. But if you carry on reading Psalm 22, you see the trust that Jesus expresses in the words, my God, my God. Psalm 22 verse 8 says, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him. It's as if Jesus, as He quotes these words from Psalm 22, is placing His hope in the rest of what this psalm expresses. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Yet, I trust You. Rescue me. Deliver me. I delight in You. And we know this is true. For what did Jesus say that His food was? His food, His delight, was to do the will of the Father. And this was the will of the Father. That Jesus might not only live for us, but that He would die for us. That He would give up His life blood, for life is in the blood. As the Old Testament law says. And by doing so, He became for those for whom He died. Scripture says, 
a propitiatory sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 3, 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Remember, we were here in the same chapter just a few moments ago, and it said, by works of the law shall no man be justified. If he ended there, we'd say, well, then what hope do we have? But he carries on. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So even in the law and in the prophets, they were pointing ahead to a time where there was going to come a moment where all of this sacrificial system, everything that they had been going through day after day, year after year, decade after decade, would come to an end. And there would be a once-for-all sacrifice where the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe would appear. He says, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person that has ever been born or ever will be born apart from Jesus who has been perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then he says this, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What were those former sins? 900 years of Adam. All the years after Adam until Jesus. All of our sins that we commit every day. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins so that it all may be applied to Christ. It was to show his righteousness at the present time hear this, so that He, God Himself, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. My social media feeds went nuts this last week because in the Canadian Parliament, they recognized a former Ukrainian soldier from World War II, who had an association with the Nazis. They were part of a uh, Nazi-controlled regiment of the Ukrainian army. Why did my social media feed go nuts? Because in our culture and in our day, no matter what the circumstances of that young man's world was that many years ago, what was he, 17 or 18 years old? No matter what the context or the circumstances of that were, for us in our day and in our age and our culture, to have any association with Nazis in Germany at that time is a sin too great for any kind of redemption or forgiveness. And so for them to recognize him, people went nuts. We might say that comes from a sense of justice. 
we understand that uh, I, I remember when, what was it, Adolf Eichmann, was that his name that was found in South America when I was a kid? I remember when that happened. What Did anyone say, oh, you know what? It's been a long time. You know, he's really old. Let's just let him go. Let's just let him off the hook. Time heals all wounds. Forgive and forget. No. And nor should they have. Justice requires payment. We understand that inherently. And if God was just to merely overlook sin, then God Himself would not be just. But in order that God might be just, He made Himself the justifier through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and pays the penalty for our sin for us and in our place. It is through Christ's death on the cross that a portal and way is opened up for us, even as that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. And by faith and trust in Christ alone, we enter into that portal when we trust in His blood and death for us to be, what did Paul call it? God put forward as a propitiation, a complete and total wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That the blood of Jesus, for those who put their faith and trust in Him, the blood of Jesus becomes, the, the best we can kind of conceive of it, is like a, a, a complete and total encapsulation. Even as Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock, we are hidden into Christ. And by Christ we are protected from the wrath of God. He absorbs all of it for us. And we come out not the same dead, dirty, stinking, sinful corpse that we were when we were placed into Christ. Instead, we come out alive, clean, and declared to be the sons and daughters, the children of God. The cross of Jesus, His blood, His death, our shield. This is why Christians for centuries have crossed themselves in prayer. Though as so many things do to a frail and weak mind, it has become for many a superstitious tick in its purest form. It was a constant reminder to themselves and those that looked on that our shield of faith is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that St. Patrick would pray, Christ, to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, wounding, so that there may come to me an abundance of reward. What did he say? Christ with me. 
Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today, Patrick said, through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness. Amen. And he would have crossed himself. A reminder, not that that was doing anything for him, but a reminder to him that his shield of faith was the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' death was necessary to accomplish what was demanded by God's holiness to prepare a way for us that His own will, we talked about Ephesians 1, He did this by the purpose of His will, His own will to have us as sons and daughters may not be thwarted by our own frailty and human form and weakness prone as we are to temptation and sin. Christ's death was necessary because without someone paying the wages of sin, there can be no gift of God's eternal life. But Christ's death is also substitutionary. This is what all the sacrifice in the Old Testament was foreshadowing. Propitiation. There was propitiation in the Old Testament, but it only lasted for a year. And even then, it wasn't effectual. It was temporal. It was God saying, I'm going to continue to forbear with you until the appointed time. As they would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and doves. And there was what we call expiation. Where they would take the scapegoat and they would lay their hands and ask God that the sins of the people would be transferred to the goat and they'd lead the goat outside the city walls and let it go that it may carry the sins away. Jesus has become for us both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. Our sins were placed on Him and He was led out of the city, but He also became the atoning sacrifice for sin. And you hear me say so often over and over the words, Christ for us and in our place. Even today, I've already said it several times, Christ for us and in our place. Christ for us and in our place. What am I trying to point you to over and over again? I'm trying to point to you to the substitutionary work of Christ for us and in our place. This is a summary of the gospel. You could say it this simply to remind yourself, Christ in my place. You see, the death of Christ was not only uh, necessary, it was substitutionary. He did not merely earn righteousness for Himself. He earned it for others. Who are those others? It was not His own penalty He was paying. He was not guilty. It was yours. It was mine. He died for us and for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Isaiah 53, 
verses 3 through 6, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Listen to this. Surely he has borne, Isaiah doesn't say his own griefs. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's exactly what the people around the cross on that day are doing. They're mocking him. They're saying, let us see if God will come and save him. In other words, what? If God doesn't, it must be God's will that he be there. How could they be so right and so wrong at the same time? It was God's will that he would be there. But he was not paying for his own sins. He was paying for theirs, for ours. Then listen, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It was our chastisement. It was the chastisement that you and I have all earned, deserved. And yet, it was poured out on Christ. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. This is what that great song by Philip P. Bliss summarizes. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinner to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, what does it say? In my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was He, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah! What a Savior! He was lifted up to die. It is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah! What a Savior! When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah! What a Savior. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Just a few verses down in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. What is that? That's a substitute. The unrighteous who deserved it were set aside. The righteous who did not deserve it was brought in their place and received what they deserved. He said that He might Bring us to God. Jesus comes and makes a way 
so that the men of dust may be born again as the children of God and bear the image of the man of heaven. He says that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. For who? For you. For who? For me. For who? For us. In our place condemned he stood and sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, without a substitute, we have to pay. And we will pay and pay and pay, and just like as if Adam had been able to work in the garden and never sin, it never would have been enough. And our payment and our blood will never be enough. No one having died and entered the judgment of hell will ever be released for their own payment for sin is never enough to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's holiness. There's never going to come a time, beloved, hear me, for those in hell where God will show up and say, okay guys, that's enough. The time served just just went over the edge. Paid in full to tell us die. It's finished. It's done. You all can come out. The fire of hell is fueled by the holiness of God. And the holiness of God can never endure being transgressed. There will never come a point where anyone will have done enough to pay for their own or anyone else's sin. But Jesus' blood was enough to pay for our sin. Only Jesus. So His death was necessary. His death was substitutionary. But his death is also effectual. If you go back to that passage in Ephesians 1, where we left off in verse 7, it says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. I was in fourth grade. It was long enough ago that cereal companies still did this. If you got the cereal box and you cut out the purchase uh, code on the top, you could mail it in and get a prize. And they had these wicked, cool, rad, is what we used to say, these rad, these radical black sunglasses with mirrors on the inside so that you could look behind you. I thought those things were just cool. I could spy on people. I thought this would be amazing. I got them through corn pops 
which were not the cheapest box of cereal, so it took me a while. Uh, and, and I saved up those box tops, and I sent them in to get my glasses. Now, what would have happened, I ask you, if I had, let's, I can't remember how many boxes it was, but let's say it was five. And what would happen if I had got four boxes of corn pops and put those in an envelope and sent them off to the corn pops people to get my glasses? Would I have got any glasses? No. Why? It was not enough to redeem the prize. That's what redemption is. There is a price. And in order to redeem the prize, the redemption price has to be paid. Never mind, I got those glasses, took them to school the first day, and somebody stole them. I was so mad. Then the next day at school, the school cafeteria gave out glasses to everybody with mirrors on them. The only problem was the ones I got were pink. I'm still mad about that. But what does it say here? It says, in Him, in Christ, we have what? We have redemption through His blood. His blood was enough to redeem us. His blood was the redemption price, and it was enough to redeem the prize. That was us. We have redemption through His blood. He carries on the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. And he repeats himself here, and Paul says, according to His purpose. This was God's design. This was God's plan. This was His purpose from the very beginning, from before the beginning, that in Christ He would redeem His people so that they would not remain the men and women of dust, but would become the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death was necessary And in His death, He became our substitutionary sacrifice for us and in our place. But it was also effectual. It accomplished the purpose that it was designed to do. Namely, to redeem all God's children. Colossians 1, 12-14, and we're Closing, just a few moments. Paul, again writing, says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of our sins. For who is the death of Christ effectual? For all those who ever have or ever will place their faith and trust in Him. Think of it this way. For whom is a bridge effectual? A bridge is only effective for those who walk out on it. 
You can stand at the side of a great expanse, longingly looking over at the other side, but only those who see the bridge and place their trust in it and venture to walk across to the other side, it is only for those that that bridge is effectual. You can admire the bridge. There's some beautiful bridges in the world. You can look at it, take pictures of it, admire it, say what, a, what an amazing bridge. But that bridge is only effectual for you experientially if you actually trust it enough to go across it and walk to the other side. You can admire Jesus from a distance. You can try and follow him from a place of safety and comfort. But until you actually put your faith and trust in him, his work, which was done for all of God's children, is not effectual for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, whoever, in other words, what? Puts their trust in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In order for us to receive the necessary, substitutionary, effectual death of Christ for us and in our place, we must put our faith, and trust in Him. There may be days that you don't know. You have doubts. That's not the problem. Even the smallest faith even the most faltering faith is enough to receive Christ's work. Because at the end of the day, it's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus who saves. We are weak, feeble sinners filled with doubts but Christ is a mighty and effective Savior. With however much faith you have, trust Him. See that He is able to save even to the uttermost those who are in need of salvation. The end of Psalm 22, Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very end of Psalm 22. 
It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's us. And here are the final words of Psalm 22. In reference to the one who is crying out because of the experiential forsakenness of God. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. And so He has. He said it Himself. In Luke's Gospel, the last cry Jesus makes before He gives up His breath. It is finished. Into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Jesus has done it. His death for us and in our place. It was necessary. Without it, we are lost. It was substitutionary. That means it counts for us. And it was effectual. It actually did what it was purposed to do. That was to redeem all God's children and purchase for them pardon and forgiveness by God's grace. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word for us today. As we have spent two weeks here and one week more, I pray, God, that this time meditating on the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for us and in our place, would not be something that fills us with dismay, but would rather fill us with faith. God, Your Word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. May we today be lifted up because of the death of Christ for us and in our place, even as we remember that though He died, yet He lived again. For You, O God, raised Him by the same Spirit that now lives and dwells in us and gives life to our mortal body and causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion. May we all feed on Christ in our hearts by faith today. Amen.